Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Tuesdays with Trey. I guess I've been doing this podcast long enough that I've begun to bother people more than once. Um, Our guest today has been on previously, but I still like her. And more importantly, I still respect her. And she's one of the more important voices, in my judgment, in what I call editorial journalism. That may not be the right phrase. I'll have to ask her if it is. And a lot has happened since we last talked. So, I cajoled in part because she's a very good person, Kim Strassel, into coming and talking to us again. Kim, welcome to you from the great state of Alaska. Hi, Trey. It is great to be here. That's very kind of you to say. (laughs) Thanks. Well, even though I'm a lawyer, I'm in every word of it. I know I've asked you this the first time, but I think the first time you came on my podcast, my mom listen, but my wife had not yet committed to be a full-time listener. So we do have a new audience. What <laughs> caused you to go into journalism? Um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. Uh, even when I was in college, I didn't know what kind of writing I wanted to do. And I, to be honest with you, I was offered an opportunity. I was uh, at college and I was working a job there after classes uh, watching the children of two very influential journalists, Karen Elliott House and Peter Kahn, who were legends at the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones. And when I got done with college and was unsure what I wanted to do, um, in fact, I was going to go to law school. And they said, no, oh my God, don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. <laughs> at least take a, a year out and go see what else there is you could do in the world. And I ended up getting a a, a news assistant, a lowly news assistant position at Wall Street Journal in Europe, which was also just exciting because, you know, I grew up in Oregon. I hadn't been really out of the country ever. So I lived in Europe about five years and working for the journal. And I just loved it. And and after I was there not long, I knew it's what I wanted to do. You should write a thank you note every day of your life to whoever talks you out of going to law school. What I, what I tell people, if you're like John Ratcliffe and there's nothing else literally in the world you could have done, you should go to law school. If, if it's between that and just not eating, you should go to law school. But it sounds like you had options. So I did. I was lucky, very fortunate to be surrounded by people who were very generous with their time and their advice. All right. Every now and again, and, and, and you may have an opinion on whether the line is uh, one of clear demarcation or, or whether it's become blurrier, but there is a line between like straight news reporting and being an editorialist. At one point, I think you were, I mean, you don't just start off as an opinion writer. You got to work your way up, right? Well, so some people do start out as opinion writers. It just so happened that I started on the news side of the Wall Street Journal. And while I'd always had conservative tendencies, that was not the position I was offered in the beginning. And uh, about five years into my time at the Journal, we, I moved back to the United States and it, a job became open at the editorial page. I remember going and applying for it and sitting down with the famous Bob Bartley. And I think everyone was so surprised that someone on the news side actually wanted a job on the editorial page. <laughs> because really? the thing about the journal is, you know, once you go over to the editorial page, you are considered damaged goods. I mean, you can't come back. <laughs> You can't come back and be a straight up reporter anymore. They feel as though you've tipped your card. You've told everyone you have an opinion and now you can no longer be trusted really to 
to to to be a straight up uh, fact based uh, you know non opinionated news writer and so it's kind of a big decision to go over there. Um, I think they were so surprised I came they just gave me the job. <laughs> I want you to tell your friends or whoever in your line of work. I mean, when you were saying that your damaged goods those are my words not your words. <laughs> if you if you go more towards opinion. I mean, I think of every single day people appear in front of judges that either were criminal defense attorneys or prosecutors in a previous life. It actually requires more discipline and more talent to be able to separate what you believe from your work. So, uh, look, I'm out of my depth talking about journalism. You understand it. And I don't know that I that I do. But I, I, I will ask you this. Has the line become blurrier over the course of your career? So, yes, I think it has, but I also understand in some ways the reason for it, okay? And this is gonna sound a little bit more, be more nuanced than some people would want, but here's the thing. If you remember, you know, going back, you and I are both old enough to remember the days before newspapers were online, okay? And so you actually waited to get your news the next morning. The newspaper showed up at your house. Um, maybe you'd watched Walter Cronkite uh, before he went to bed, right? But especially like news like the Wall Street Journal, it came in. Remember the old days, too, when you had to wait for the next morning to see where your stock had ended up because they actually published all the stock tables and you got them the next day? Okay, so as that all began to change and people could begin to get their news in real time, And you could get it from any outlet too, right? I mean, you could get your instant news from CNN online or the Wall Street Journal online and they'll all have the same headlines. Newspapers, especially on the news side, news sides of newspapers felt as though they needed to do something to provide added value. And what they came down on is, okay, if we can't get an edge by providing the straight up news, we'll provide analysis. An analysis walks you right up to the edge of opinion. And that's where I think things have become very tough for newspapers and that divide in years. I'm not saying some people don't do it well. I think the journal still does it well. But a lot of people, I think, at other outlets view the word analysis as just another word for my opinion. Is is there tension in your line of work? Because... I mean, there's a business component to it. I mean, I guess in theory, I could read everything. In fact, I do read almost everything I get my hands on, but there is competition. Have you detected over the course of your career more of an emphasis on being first or more of an emphasis on being correct? Or is that a false dichotomy? So in my world, in the editorial board world and editorial page opinion, There's definitely more of an emphasis, I I do the third category, on being on the news, okay? In the long sweep of opinion writers, if you think about it, and editorial boards, often those uh, unsigned editorial board opinions that were there, they might be on a, a more kind of intellectual topic, right? Or something that Congress had done a year ago, or some sort of project here or there that they wanted to cover. The emphasis now is much more, you know, there was a Senate gun bill agreement that was came to on Sunday, and we need to have an editorial on that agreement and let our readers know kind of as as soon as we can, what to kind of think about that and what the details are. So it's more, it's, it's, it's not about anything. One thing I really admire the journal for is they are not about clicks. They do not ever encourage you to choose some juicy subject because everybody wants to hear about it and more people will click and you'll have more viewers. It's a very methodical process, what we do, but it, there is a real emphasis on being on topic. All right. I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. I am fascinated by your line of work, as you can probably tell, in part because I think it's indispensable to a thriving democracy that we have a press that is unafraid, unabashed, doesn't care. I mean, I think they need to be respected, but whether or not they're liked, I think, is is immaterial. Irrelevant. Yeah. So I want to ask you two more things, one of which you will probably artfully dodge, and I probably would, too, if I were you. I read other newspapers in addition to yours. 
And the, quote, conservative voice is not a form of conservatism that I am familiar with. It is, and these are prominent publications, and if that is the conservative voice, then I don't know what planet I have been living on. So who gets to decide, you know, pick the Jerusalem Post. We'll we'll, we'll pick a paper that's not in the United States. I mean, who gets to decide you're the conservative voice compared to what? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I guess I think of it more in the broad realm of the whole conservative mix. Right. And, and by the way, thank God we're not uniform. OK. You know, um, I think because I think too often and it frustrates me sometimes I watch Democrats in Congress and Nancy Pelosi puts out the line and everybody's on the same talking points within five minutes. Our side, as you know, from your time there, <laughs> we're a little bit messier. People have different views. Uh, you know, I mean, the conservative voice out there. Um, I think it's the same in journalism. Uh, look, one thing I love about our editorial board is I think we have been consistent for pretty much all of our existence, in part because we have this motto that we follow, free markets and free people. And every decision that we make about an editorial line is run through that lens. Um, I think, unfortunately, some other publications suffer from you get a change of leadership and then you get a different kind of viewpoint guiding thing. Uh, Sometimes you get a change of the leader of the party and they sort of follow that instead of, you know, what their own. I I feel blessed that I don't have to deal with all that mess um, and I can continue to write everything through that particular lens I described. Um, I think. In, in the absence of a sort of long time natural leader of the party that's developed a consistent philosophy of the conservative movement, uh, I think it's natural that you get some of these branching ideologies as it were. And, you know, I think at some point someone is gonna come along uh, and, and, and maybe pull everybody together again on the same page, but there's probably gonna be a little bit of party intra movement back and forth for a while. We're going to pause right there. More of our interview with Kim Strassel is coming up. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All right. That was a, a very good answer to my attempt at a provocative question. I, I was thinking about how I was thinking about one in particular that that refers to herself, if that gives you any hint, as the conservative voice. And I'm just sitting there thinking, but but it's been eight years since you liked a Republican. So I mean you you didn't even like Paul Ryan. But I know. Uh, but I digress. All right. Some things appear under your name and then some things appear editorial board. Do y'all write opinions? I mean, I'm thinking like the Supreme Court or any court, they have what's called per curiam opinions where it yeah. kind of speaks for the whole body. Uh-huh. But what if you don't agree with the editor? Can you write a dissent or do you just say, <laughs> look, <it's, laughs> I'll cover that in my own piece sometime? You know, here's here's the really here's what I think. There are so many things I love about working at the Wall Street Journal. I mean, and I do. I just I love where I work Um, and I love the editorial board. I love my colleagues. Um, But one thing that's kind of neat about it is you were just talking about all these different voices out there and the conservative firmament and different people saying I speak for the conservative movement or I do or this is what a real conservative. The great thing is everybody knows what the journal editorial page is. (laughs) Free markets, free people. And we don't tend to get a lot of people who come and want to work there and fervently want to work there who kind of don't believe in that. So you'd be surprised. We do have debates over stuff because to the extent that there is a little bit something there, it wouldn't surprise you to know that as you would often find, you put a group of 10 conservative types in a room, uh, you're going to get some that are a little bit more culturally conservative and some that are a little bit more libertarian. Okay, so that's usually where some of the mix is. I write not just my column every week, but I write a lot of our editorials unsigned. And I can tell you, I have never been asked to write an editorial that I disagree with. But honestly, I can think of very few 
in my whole 20 some year career that I actually disagreed with because we're sort of all there on the same broad page. That is so unlike law school where we spend more time focused on the dissent and opinions than we do the majority opinion. It sounds like a fascinating place to work. Maybe I should have applied there instead of spending eight years in in Congress. Don't get me wrong. We dissent. Our meetings that we have are fun, but they're respectful. They're lively. And, you know, I think one of the reasons they are respectful is because the people who are making the arguments are, are not afraid to make the arguments and they know they're going to be respected. And so it leads for a lot of openness and cool debate. All right. This really is my last question about that generally, because I am I come from a system where we could not use anonymous sources, but we also had the ability to compel people to come who didn't want to come. You cannot compel someone to talk to you who does not want to talk to you. So and when I say you, I'm not talking about opinion writing. I'm really talking about journalism now the the use of and in some instances reliance on anonymous sources. If 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 I were a young, you know, young female reporter at the Hill or Politico or Roll Call or somewhere and I have to have sources, but they don't want to be. How do you balance the trustworthiness of the information without citing the source, because that allows me to know whether or not I can believe the source in some instances. Yeah, it's become a huge problem. I totally agree with you. You know, look, anonymous sources are an aspect of journalism because the choice you have to make is, is this information important enough that the public needs to know it and important enough that I could justify keeping a source anonymous, okay? Where I think we err is when we simply have like anonymous people who are commenting on a situation rather than providing something of value. Uh, That is not good. But here's the thing that really bugs me, Trey. It's become like this huge issue for me because it's, it's so bad for journalism, but it's also so deliberate. Anybody who does this and I see in a newspaper article, I instantly dismiss them as not a credible journalist anymore. It's when they're writing about something of import. They are actually giving you a piece of information. They're quoting their sources anonymous, but they're not even giving you any identifying pieces of information to allow you to understand the context of the person who was giving it. So let me give you an example. You know, during the whole Trump-Russia collusion hoax thing, there would be reporters who would simply quote a Democrat as giving an information about the FBI. Was it a former member of the FBI? Is it a member of Congress who's actually seen something? Is it a member of the, you know, former Obama administration who was doing something they shouldn't have been doing? You know, just let me know who it is and whether or not those people are too conflicted to be speaking or whether or not I should be suspicious about the information they gave, given where they come from. When we don't allow people to have any identifiers that give them any sense of the motivation of the source and why they're speaking, that's a problem. Hold that thought, because I'm going to ask you about that in the context of of two stories that I want to ask you about that I've been following. You mentioned the Russia investigation. I got to be honest with you, Kim. I was stunned to learn that the entire Durham investigation hung in the balance based on what a D.C. jury was going to do uh, with a with a criminal case. I could have told you the outcome of that. I mean, good luck convincing 12 people the FBI was victimized. Good, Good luck with that. And the Russia investigation either began in late 2015 or early 2016, which was months and months and months before Michael Sussman walked in to James Baker's office. So what is your assessment of the Durham investigation? And and is anybody going is is anybody going to care when and if something comes out? So. First of all, I take my hat off to John Durham because I, I, look, he's a bright guy. You know all about how this works. He had to have known what his chances were going into a D.C. jury. It strikes me, and you know a lot more about this than I do, and you can correct me where I'm wrong, but it just, from the very beginning all the way through until the minute the jury announced that, it seemed that his entire process the speaking indictments, all the documents he fought to have filed in court and used, 
the fact that he decided to bring this case, even though it was on a, you know, as these things go, it wasn't a conspiracy charge. It was a lying to the feds charge, not the kind of biggest ham sandwich out there. Um, that his goal all along was to tell people the story. I think he's a bit concerned that maybe even if he does a report, someone might try to squelch it or meddle with it or fuss with it. So I, I, I take, I give him credit. We wouldn't know anything about all these operatives. I mean, they were using techies who had access to non-public information. Hillary Clinton gave the final sign off to send it to the press. We wouldn't know all the members of her campaign that was involved in it. Same goes with all the information we're getting about the FBI in terms of the other, uh, that Danchenko indictment that he's brought as well, too. We'll get more out of that case. So I understand people's frustration at the loss. And I understand that people don't always have a long uh, memory or attention span. So maybe someone will feel it will not care. But I think it's very important from a matter of public record that we know exactly what happened here. Yeah, I mean, uh, my take on it is it's really hard to convince 12 people of anything in this culture, uh, <laughs> I mean, especially beyond a reasonable doubt. And and then you have these kind of uh, in the ether, the, this notion of jury nullification. I mean, if it is true that the foreperson of the jury said the FBI has bigger fish to fry or the Department of Justice, I mean, that's really not something for the jury to decide. Your job right. is to decide whether or not the evidence is sufficient. So those are all big hurdles. I kept going back in my mind, Kim, I'm sitting at this table. The Speaker of the House decides to show up because he wants to communicate to DOJ. It's important. Devin is there. Cash is there. This is before Ratcliffe started coming with us, just repeatedly asking the FBI, when did this begin and mm -hmm. what was the factual predicate? And I still cannot answer that question. I no, mean, neither you, can I. I, I I know when the dossier became became it fell into FBI hands. I, I know that. I know when the initiation of of Crossfire Hurricane. I know when Sussman went into James Baker's office. I don't know what happened in late 2015 or well before the dossier. And to me, that is when the Russia investigation began. I know what the FBI told us. Right. But 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 that that ain't panning out. So do you think we'll ever know what what predicated the bureau doing that? Yeah. So here's my frustration is no, except for that. My prediction is no. However, I think we might be able to get to a point where we can guess at what happened. And here's this. I mean, here's what I thought was really important about the Durham trial that just finished assessment trial. You begin to get a sense from all the emails he's putting out, the documents from inside the Clinton campaign, the work of Fusion GPS, just how many people in Washington, D.C. knew about all of this prior to the FBI initiating its formal crossfire hurricane investigation. How many politicians likely knew? How many members of the press likely knew? And, and then you start to think, Trey, I mean, you remember we had members of the press that just called up James Baker at the FBI and and waltzed in and gave him information. The FBI was talking to journalists every day, even though they probably shouldn't have been. Uh, so maybe it was because George Papadopoulos said something slightly untoward in London and somebody decided. But I would find it more likely they'd already heard about this and they were looking for a pretext. And that's what they chose. And now they're sticking with it. And this got me in trouble once. It's probably going to get me in trouble again. But but it's all, but, but but it's also true. Okay, you hear something about George Papadopoulos. I don't have a problem with the bureau running that out. I mean, Kim, they may hear that you and I robbed a bank in Montana. Mm -hmm. I feel pretty confident in saying neither one of us did that. I know that I did not that do that, <laughs> and you don't. Not. Okay, well, that's both of us. I don't care if they call me and say, hey, where were you on this date? Mm -hmm. Or where was Kim? Str I don't care. I don't. Right. I, I mean, they shag leads all the time. What I care is when you went from that to an investigation that kind of dominated the country's landscape for what, five years now, did incredible damage to the reputation of the FBI. 
Which leads me to my other question. I mean, you, you follow D.C. more closely than I do now. There's a lot of talk about police reform, and they're always talking about state and local cops, how they're going to reform all that. The one police agency they actually have jurisdiction over is the FBI. And yeah. I don't hear anything about the miserable five years they've had. Yeah. You know, we had a really, really great piece. Um, we've had a couple of great pieces on the editorial page by people who are former FBI agents or people who worked in the Department of Justice talking about changes in particular that were made by Bob Mueller in the wake of 9-11. Um, and how they think that that has really undermined the agency and put us in a position where it could become as politicized as it did as easily as it did. Um, one of them, a lot of it leads back to this notion. And again, you had a lot more interaction than I ever have on, on a day to day level. But uh, this this argument that kind of part of the counterintelligence, new counterintelligence focus the FBI was given put a lot more operational control with senior management, which means that a lot of things are no longer being run through the kind of beat cops on the ground in the FBI, the guys who are trained to be skeptical, the guys who don't have all those political ties and the guys who, you know, they're, they're the, they, the classic G-man, right? Um, and instead, you know, look at, look at Crossfire Hurricane. It was all dealt with by about five people in Washington, D.C., None of the other areas were read in. It was close hold. And so one result is you had nobody checking. There was nobody to provide any check up above because the guys at top were making all the decisions. Um, and I think that there's some what you say is totally true. But this is something Congress really ought to look at, something if the GOP gets the majority again, it ought to be a focus for them. It's been a long time since we've had some kind of structural reform, too, of any of these agencies. I, I, I know, you know, Johnny Ratcliffe, he was a he was a U.S. attorney in Texas. He was, you know, one of my not not not, not just one of my closest friends in Congress. He still is. And I'm still in touch with Cash Patel, who worked for the Department of Justice and was a federal public defender. It, we're not, I mean, these are not empty words when we say it actually breaks our heart to see this. I mean, we actually love the Department of Justice or what it was. I just, I don't know, between, you know, missing the tip in the Florida school shooting, missing the background check on Dylan Roof, you've got the USA Gymnastics. Yeah. It, 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 you got really inserting yourself in, in Hillary Clinton's campaign through mid-year exam through crossfire hurricane. I just think it's been a terrible six years for the FBI, but I don't see anything being done about it. They talk about state and local cops. Yeah. You know, we keep getting these periodic reviews as well too, either forced by judges or coming out through inspector generals of the way in which they're handling, you know, surveillance uh, warrants and, and the FISA court, you know, there's clearly been a lot of, Put it however you want to. On the one hand, you could say it's abuse. On the other hand, you could say it's sloppiness. In neither situation should you be particularly proud of, of the outcome. And, and you know, I, that's speaking as someone who's actually long defended and promoted the idea that we need to have government that has some ability to engage in wiretapping, especially with the terrorism threat that is out there. But if we can't keep our house in order if these agents don't understand and, and leadership don't understand the importance of doing it by the book, then you're going to have bipartisan souring in Washington. You saw it just a couple of years ago. Republicans were ready to throw over a whole bunch of those capabilities because they were so frustrated by the abuse. Oh, I, I, I remember a tweet uh, one morning uh, by a guy that used to live at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And I remember talking to Pompeo and he was on his way over there. Uh, and, the, and, and that particular former president changed his tweet. Yeah, they, it, it, it was, uh, yeah, I remember Devin and Paul having some you know, robust conversations about, yeah, well, all right. I would ask you about the stock market, but it's so depressing for me. Uh, to, to, to know that, uh, that my wife is going to have to work until she is 112 years old. So I'm not going to ask you about that. I want to ask you, about 
<laughs> maybe 111. I didn't check it before we got on with each other today. Do you uh, actually check it? I check it because um, I used to have a fantasy baseball team. I, I check numbers all the time. I love having my happiness impacted by things I can't control. I love it. So <laughs> I should have been a psychologist. That's what they all recommend. Focus on things you cannot control. So, wow. I, I will tell looked you in like two months. I'll, here's what I will tell you. I, I, the, 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 the gentleman that helps me, I said, here's what I can promise you. You're never going to hear from me. I'm never, ever going to call you. And I don't, I've yet, I've yet to call him, but I check just because some of the guys I play golf with, I mean, their like lives depend upon whether that number is green <laughs> or red. Mine does not, but I'm going to ask you about something that I do watch and a lot because I understand it a little bit better. January 6th had its first prime time hearing. I was, uh, commentaries probably being overly generous to myself. I was asked to give commentary <laughs> So I watched every second of it and I watched yeah. it this morning too. What was your, I want to talk to you about the substance and then the process, but first the substance, what, what were your takeaways? So on the substance, I think that they have told us some things we didn't know. Okay. Look, I, I want to be clear. I don't think it necessarily has changed the broad arc of anything. I think that that story was written within a couple of days of January 6th happening the story of a president who sat watching TV as this disgrace unfolded on the Capitol and he didn't do anything about it. Okay. I don't think anything they've said has changed that broad arc of the narrative. Um, including by the way, too, another thing that I think that it does get forgotten a lot that the reason that our institutions held is because other Republicans refused to stand by while the president didn't do anything or actively, you know, didn't, didn't help. I do think that the committee has nonetheless produced some things that are notable that we didn't know that certainly made me say, okay, I wasn't really aware of all that, which is useful uh, on the, on the margins, for instance, I think it's notable uh, if the president, and this was certainly something that got brought up last week and now was a focus this morning on today's hearing some more that if the president was being continuously told by many of his most credible advisors around him that uh, all of this election fraud stuff was nonsense and that uh, there was not a path for changing the election, that's news. That's important to know because it does suggest uh, an even different and kind of worse reading of the president's behavior leading up to and on that day. This is the Trey Gowdy podcast. More of our interview with Kim Strassel is next. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Can I prove to you why people hate lawyers? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to prove to you by, by, by taking that point and telling you how I, how I bifurcated it. Okay. I think there's a difference between what the president knew and accepted at the time and what he was being told. Mm. And I don't think either one of them are charitable, but as a prosecutor, I would go about, it is very hard to prove what someone believed. Mm. Yeah. It is not hard to prove what they were told. Told. Yeah. But I don't think either one of them is a great defense <laughs> that, I mean, when, when your defense is, well, everyone else is wrong, that's not a great defense. And if your defense is, yeah, I believed it, uh, but I did it anyway, that's not a great defense. I, I had the same I, – I actually listed that as number one on the list, but in hindsight, I would say if any president – and I was having this conversation with Tim Scott over the weekend – if any president was agnostic about a vice president being in harm's way, Right. That to me is incredibly significant. Did you take that from it also? Yes, although one problem, and you mentioned anonymous sources, uh, we don't know where that kind of uh, quote came from. I think it's 
kind of disturbing that no one has said so either, because it's quite a dramatic charge to make that the president joined in and claimed that if, you know, they were going to hang Mike Pence, that's what he deserved. I mean, that's a that's a very radical comment. Um, and, you know, to your point, too, about bifurcating those, I, I actually think that's really important because one other thing that came up while I was watching this both last week and today, and it goes now we're, we're venturing not in the substance, but the process. But the fact that there is no adversarial aspect to this whatsoever, the fact that there is no cross-examination, no opportunity for a minority to bring in opposing witnesses, no anything, means that while we have a lot of testimony of people who were telling the president this, what we're not hearing from is what was likely a whole bunch of other people who were telling him the opposite. And you just can't know, and that might get to your point about what did he believe in the end, right? Because it might not have been as cut and dried as what's being presented, obviously, in the in the committee. And that's a that's why you want to have both of those sides so you can make that judgment. And that's been my beef with the committee, my bigger beef. Kim, I have this very lightly viewed show on Sunday nights. You would be uh, you would be. Uh, forgiven for not uh, being aware of it. Oh, no, it's great. No, I, uh, I've wondered who the three viewers were. And if you watch it, then I've identified one of the three. (laughs) I did something on cross-examination because I believe so much in it. And, and so when I, when they level that accusation, it is a serious accusation and it cries out to be asked, who is your witness? How right. close to the president are they? Are they a detractor or a supporter? Were they in a position to hear any of that? Or is it rank hearsay? And, you know, I watched this morning and they played a lot of Bill Barr's clips. Jim Jordan was one of my favorite colleagues. And that was true on the days we agreed with one another. And that was true on the days we did not agree with one another. I just really, really, really appreciated how hard that guy worked. Mm-hmm. However, I am not worried about Bill Barr crumbling and giving misinformation under the cross-examination of Jimmy or if Johnny Ratcliffe were still there or Pompeo or Susan Brooks. I'm just I'm not worried about standing up to cross-examination. I'm worried about not having it. So to me, in some ways, the process and the substance are hopelessly intertwined. You got to get the truth that then you have to be able to believe the truth when you get it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's been my problem with this all along is if you the decision by Pelosi to veto those particular members essentially was another way of saying we're concerned that our evidence won't even stand up to the to the questioning of people, other people within the House. Um, you know, what, what kind of message does that actually send? And I've been very frustrated, Trey, by when you make this argument, okay, you should have allowed the Republicans to have their say. The argument you get, not just from supporters of the committee, but people on the committee is, we couldn't allow anyone to be on this committee that doesn't believe what we believe. Like, wow. I mean, you worked in a courtroom. Imagine if the argument was, well, you know what? Everybody saw this guy go into the supermarket and shoot up the supermarket. So he can't have a defense because we can't allow things like this to stand. And we all understand how evil that is. And so uh, we, it would just be dangerous to even have somebody make the argument that there was a, a legitimacy or a reason or defense for this. There's that, Kim, and then there's my little walk down memory lane with the committees that I was on, and there were Democrats on the other side who, um, well, Adam Schiff was on both the Libya committee and the Russia committee, and uh, the notion that uh, Jim Jordan, I don't know banks, but the notion that Jim Jordan is somehow more flawed than Adam Schiff, are you kidding me? I know, I know. I I mean- (laughs) I had there was a guy on the Russia committee who had a brother running against Trump at the time to be president of the United States. Mm-hmm. That that's that fancy legal word called bias. Now, it doesn't mean that Representative Castro could not serve on the committee. It doesn't mean he couldn't 
ask whatever questions, but you want to, I mean, the notion that because Jim might have already made up his mind, Swalwell is writing a book on Trump while he's investigating Trump. I know. And she didn't take any of those people off. I know. No, or even, you know, supposedly, I mean, and again, okay, remember, what are we talking about? We're talking about January 6th. It was the day they were counting the electoral votes. People were objecting. That's why people were going down to the Congress. Jamie Raskin, another Democrat on the committee, just five years ago in January 2017, stood up and objected to Trump's electoral votes in Florida. I mean, what kind of legitimacy do you have to criticize what was going on that day, given that you were some of the people that first started the whole like habit of this happening? And I'm not saying, well, a pox on all your houses. I'm just saying to your point about the standards, um, it, it seems a little rich for one side to get to decide who is entitled to get to sit on here and others, especially given the committee's membership. Yeah, I wrote down I wrote down over the weekend, there is a desire to know the truth, but I can't think of anything more frustrating than thinking you have the truth, but you can't persuade anyone it is true because the process was so flawed. Yeah. And in cross-examination, whether we like it or not, look, I did not like having seven-year-olds cross-examine in court. It was excruciating <laughs> to watch that. But if we do it to kids under this belief that confrontation across examination elucidates the truth, then I think Bill Barr can stand up to the cross-examination of a member of Congress. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to end on a happy note or <laughs> at least an instructive note. I'm a young reporter. I want to be, I want to either work for the wall street journal, or I want to be really, really, really well-respected in my line of work. What are some pieces of advice you would give to young reporters on how to be really good and really res I guess respected is the word I would use. So a couple of things, first of all, learn the craft and do the work. Um, you know, journalism really is in some ways a craft. It's about, understanding the who, what, where, when, why, and how. It's about knowing how to put together a logical series of thoughts and write clearly. It's also about, uh, and, and you would know this from all your prior work, it's about getting on the phone every day and talking to people who know a great deal more about the subject that you're writing on than you do. Because you're a journalist and you have to write about 10, 20, 30 different subjects. But the people you are calling, they live this and they breathe this and they uh, they know what they're talking about. I always I had a great editor once who said, whenever you think you have got all the information you need, make one more call. <laughs> and and it was always true. Sometimes that last call would tell you something you hadn't even thought of, blow your mind. And so you, you got to put in the work. Right. Which kind of gets to the second point, the other piece of advice I would give, which is sort of the flip side of this is there is a when I started in journalism, uh, you know, you sat in front of a computer with a little green screen and you typed your stuff all day. Um, I think I actually worked for a while when I was really young where you actually put it in a pneumatic tube and it went down somewhere on people's typeset it, you know, but my bigger point is you did the job all day. And you got a byline and you were happy if you got a byline. There's a huge temptation these days for everyone to be a media star as a journalist. That We didn't have any of this when I was uh, young. And I have to be honest with you, I wish we didn't really have it now. <laughs> but it's a, a part of the deal. You know, I mean, some of it's great. I, I like I love, love podcasts. I love listening to them myself, um, TV and everything. Uh, social media, I don't love, but it, it's part of the deal. But I think there's a, too much of a temptation to do 10% of the work and 90% of the time writing kind of inflammatory things on social media, trying to get people to click on your link. Um, whereas if you do a great job with the job itself, people will come to respect you and click on that link without a lot of uh, aggressive self-promotion. Kim, I will tell you that I would be subpoenaed as a witness if you were on trial for calling people to make sure you had your facts Straight, because that's actually where I met you. And these uh, these were very uh, fact centric conversations. I remember a couple of times where uh, that is all you wanted. You wanted to make sure the chronology or the fact right. or I remember one time where 
you gave me a chance to explain in hindsight baffling comment that I had made. And you were the only person that I talked to that hadn't really kind of already made up his or her mind before I talked to him. So your that is not just advice you've given to others. You, you've done that. That's how I met you was because you would call to right. make sure. <laughs> and there are a couple other reporters that did that, but but not all that many. All right. Biggest mistake politicians make in their interactions with the media. Oh, trying to spin them. Um, you know, my best sources are the people who um, you would know day in and day out that they were going to steer you straight. Even if what they were telling you was, you know what, my party just made a big mistake or this was really dumb of us or you know, th this is not going to look good. And I really wish so-and-so had not said that. I mean, you were in politics, you understand after a while you get a feel for politics. Um, but when you get, you, you call the politician and things are clearly awful for them at the moment and they go, oh, you know, it's all good. They're blowing blow. I mean, that's my sign. I'm like, I never have any reason to talk to you anymore again, because if you can actually look at me with a straight face, like, Whereas the ones that, that acknowledge the truth, you're going to go back to them again and again. And it means that when they are telling you true, you can trust that they are. And then they can trust that the truth of a story will come out as well. Take the hits when you deserve the hits. Well, that, that is such great advice for life. People will forgive you. It's been my experience for almost anything other than lying to them. I mean, they yeah. will forgive the American people are very forgiving. If you say, look, I was an idiot. I was wrong. They just, they don't really forgive you for um, systematically lying. All right. Last question. I promise. So you can, is it all daylight or all dark now in Alaska? It is almost all daylight. So when we get to June 21st, um, it's going to be the sun will go down just enough to kind of make it twilight and come back up again about 10, 12 minutes later. It's a pretty remarkable thing. Does that mean you can play golf 24 hours a day? You can. You know, if you live here, you have to really when I first moved here, I had to I had a rough couple of years because I was not self-disciplined. And, you know, you're sitting outside and you're like, oh, have a glass of wine. And pretty soon it's like one in the morning. You're like, oh, my God, I got to get up in like three <laughs> hours. This is bad because it's just like sunny, like, you know, at 11 o'clock at night. Are your colleagues good about remembering the time difference or do they think, well, gosh, it's 10 o'clock in the morning here. Why don't I call Kim? Oh, no, I work on East Coast time. You're kidding. No. So I get up at like four, four thirty every day. And then I but on the other on the upside, I get down to like two thirty every afternoon. So it's good. All right. I don't expect you to be doing a lot of reading now because the sun's up all the time. Is there a <laughs> book that has changed your life or one that you would recommend for people? I love books. I, I, I'm reading all the time. So is there one that you would recommend? Oh, man, Trey, that is hard. You may have to edit this part of the podcast as I, so, you know, I, I read a lot of books for work, um, but I'm really a, a novel reader. Um, and I can tell you one of my favorite books. Do that. Um, and, and it did, it did kind of, well, so I, uh, I grew up in the West in Oregon and I have a total fascination and a huge collection on my bookshelves of what I call Western literature. So it's not like Westerns, like Louis L'Amour, although I do have some of those, you know, Zane Gray. Uh, it's about people who simply wrote about the kind of Western expansion experience. Um, and one of the greatest ones of all time was Wallace Stegner, who won the Pulitzer Prize, I believe in 1972. In any way, he wrote a beautiful novel called Angle of Repose, and it's about finding your place in life. Angle of repose. Angle of repose. It's a mining term. Uh, it's a term at which uh, I'd have to look this up more closely, but which a, which a kind of shaft or structure comes to rest in its sort of proper place. Now, when you say you read for work, do you do you ever write like reviews of political books? 
books. Do you do you ever have to do that? I sometimes uh, do re- or some of our book reviews. Um, you know, when there's something that comes up that's really on a subject that I'm really into or know a lot about. Um, but uh, it's not my main job. And we have a lot of other people who do that would then do it better than I do. Can I tell you what's really, really hard? For some reason, I, I've, I've had a proliferation of my friends writing books. I, honestly, I'd, I'd be surprised if my friends read a book. So I'm really shocked when they tell me they've written one. It's really, really hard it to is. do an interview with someone on a book they've written when I never read the book because I know them and I and life is just too short at this point for me to read their book. But I've got to do an interview with them on it. That is a challenge. That is tough. Um, although I will tell you, as someone who's written a couple of books, it is always uh, you do not come to expect anyone to actually have read your book before you do. And you are always a little bit shocked when you can tell that they have, because the assumption is that nobody really has done. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm more than a little bit shocked. I have a lot shocked when people tell me, which is why I love Lindsey Graham so much, because his book is going to be nothing but pictures. It's oh, going right. to be my life in pictures. <laughs> good. <laughs> uh, Kim, I could talk to you all day, and I'm sure there are parts of my questioning that you thought this is taking all day, but <laughs> I I respect your opinion, and I, I can't speak for people on the left, although I have a ton of friends on the left. I can tell you you are incredibly well regarded by my colleagues on the right, because you, you put in the time, you make an effort to get it right, uh, and you're a really good writer. So thank you, and I, I reserve the right at some point, maybe, bring you back on to see what your perspective is maybe when we find out the origins of the of the russia or yeah. when january 6th is over did they marry up finding the truth with communicating the truth well that is very kind thank you you know i will come on at any time we miss you in washington um also this is kind of a joy that i get to talk to you anyway um and and not in such a usually time deadline or stressful environment. So this is much more enjoyable. <laughs> no, there's no stress. The only stress is that you made me turn on my video. So you got to see what my hair looks like when I come back from the gym. So that's the only stress. I wish everyone had. else could see it. <laughs> no, they do not want to see that. Well, do you remember Don King, the boxing promoter? Oh, sure. If they just picture that, then they'll have a really good idea of what my hair looks like right now. There you go. <laughs> All right, you take Take care of yourself. You too. Thank you. Thank you, you Kim. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening.